Let's pray. God, you are here with us. Illumine our minds and our hearts. Let us hear your words. Illumine us in this peculiar scripture from the Old Testament. It talks about a vineyard and kings and, and things that are seemingly so far away and so removed from us in the 21st century. Send your spirit to guide us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this day. Amen. All right, so this, uh, this was another request. So I'll just put that out there. And I generally don't choose to preach on uh, Ahab and Jezebel, uh, but it went with a couple people's um, desire to learn more about certain people in the Old Testament and also um, hear about you know, the kings of Israel and Judah and how this all worked. So here's some of the setting of, of this passage. As I said before, um, chapter 21 in 1 Kings is part of a section that talks about Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and what happens kind of in the midst of Ahab's reign. Um, Ahab is the son of Omri, um, who, as with every Israelite king, and I mean the kings of Israel, so remember uh, Judah which comprised of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, separated from the 10 Northern kingdoms. And so the 10 Northern kingdoms were called Israel and the two Southern kingdoms were called Judah. So this is, this is in this split time. And so Omri, uh, who is a king of Israel, uh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which all of them did, and uh, did not really teach Ahab how to be a good Israelite, how to follow uh, the law of Moses and, and do what he was you know, kind of supposed to do and, and be in relationship with God in those ways. Jezebel uh, was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. She actually came from Phoenicia and she was the daughter of a king. And in terms of like the Canaanite and Phoenician uh, hierarchy and structure, being the daughter of a king, being a princess, she would have been a high priestess in one of the cults of, of their gods. And so it is no surprise that when she married Ahab, which was probably a political alliance, that she brought her gods with her. And in many ways, because Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and Ahab wasn't, well, he was worse, um, Jezebel didn't have any resistance in terms of um, who she was worshiping. And, and then we have Naboth, who was an unlikely and unfortunate individual, um, unlucky really, owning property near Ahab's palace. Um, and he had a vineyard. And vineyards were incredible valuable uh, and still are really in in that area and 
one of the reasons is because you could make all kinds of things from the grapes that came from, from the vineyard. Uh, and apparently Ahab looked at this vineyard and was like, I would like to make a vegetable garden. <laughs> Odd, right? Like that we have these kind of details, um, but we do. Um, so, you know, Ahab went out, tried to negotiate with Naboth and it didn't work. And so we know that Ahab had some kind of um, Torah teaching because he didn't force Naboth to give him his land. If you remember what Naboth said, he's like, no, I'm not selling the inheritance of my ancestors. So like, if we go back to when the Israelites went into this area, they were given by God. The 12 tribes were given certain land. And so it was divided up among families. And so theoretically, this is talking about some of that ancestral land that they were given back, you know, before David, before, um, before judges, back, you know, right after Moses died or when they were kind of occupying the territory, shall we say. And in Torah, you are not allowed to take someone's land, especially if it's their ancestors. And so the fact that, that Ahab pouted instead of taking it by force shows that he had some kind of knowledge, but it, it wasn't like he had a relationship with God that made him you know, do the right thing. It was just kind of, this is what it was. And so because Jezebel wasn't an Israelite, and she grew up in a different culture. She was like, why on earth are you pouting and moping around? I'll take care of it. So Ahab pouted and sulked. And then Jezebel basically orchestrated a hostile takeover of this property, including murder, uh, lying, and um, lots of manipulation and so then elijah shows up and and gives god's judgment jezebel feels no remorse um as at least as we hear in the scripture um and her dead body is eaten by dogs which i don't know about you but a that sounds kind of unfortunate just like in general um, but it, it doesn't have any kind of meaning to us in our culture. If you're talking about the Jewish culture, not having a proper burial was a huge curse. So like the fact that she died and then was eaten by dogs shows in, in Jewish culture how much she was cursed um, or uh, not sure how else to say it, but uh, you know, like I heard yesterday, um, there's a Chinese proverb or a curse that is, um, how does it go? May you be born in changing times, <laughs> which cracked me up, right? Because we're all born in changing times. Um, but so I'll say an equivalent curse in terms of, of Jewish culture and tradition would be, you know, may your body be eaten by dogs or, you know, may you not have a proper burial. Like th 
those are fighting words um, in a lot of ways. And so when Elijah shows up, Ahab, for whatever reason, realizes that he has not done, uh, not done good by, by Yahweh. And he repents and he puts on sackcloth and he fasts. And because of that, God postpones the judgment on Ahab and his family until after he's dead. So he won't see his, you know, he won't see his entire family wiped out, but it will happen. And, you know, I think this is a great story. Um, partly because, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I have a lot of friends that watch Game of Thrones. I don't have the Netflix or any kind of streaming, so I've never watched any of it. But like, people are like, oh, you know that's so violent. Like, all we have to do really is read the Old Testament in bits and pieces. And we have the same thing. Like it's, it's great story. It's riveting, right? You're like, you're drawn in You're like, Ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. And, and part of that is, is holding, holding these words somewhat lightly, right? We, we were, we understand, I guess, as people living in the 21st century, 3,000 years after these stories started to be collected and gathered and then eventually were written down, um, there's, there's a lot that happens that we don't understand. Uh, we, we can't say for certain why these scriptures were included in, in, first, in, in first Kings. We don't know. But I think there are a few lessons from scripture, this particular passage that we can, um, that we can glean or see. And I think part of it too, is that we can, we can see what, uh, what humanity has become in some ways through scripture and how far, far it's gone from what Jennifer read from first, uh, from Genesis chapter one. Um, I'm sorry, not, not Jennifer, you're Jennifer, Michelle, there we go. Sorry, I'm looking at you talking about her, didn't work. Yes, so what Michelle read, um, and so human, humanity was created in the image of God with a huge capacity for love and grace and goodness. And then we see what, what happens, right? Like three or four chapters later, it all goes sideways, and uh, and yet we are still created in that goodness. There's still opportunity to repent and turn back, and those kind of things. And so, to me, having the the foundation and the the reminder of who we have been created to be and how we've been created in love and goodness and and compassion is really important to, to hold that with reading about how incredibly terrible uh, Ahab and Jezebel were. Because I think it is not an, an overstatement to say these are two of the worst people that scripture writes about. They are horrible people um, in terms of their actions and and what, what they do, how they use people, how they manipulate, um, they are not, not good people in any way, shape or form. But 
if you read the broader context of of first kings god doesn't actually give up on them god sends elijah as a prophet god wants to woo them back and so for me all of that being said the, the first lesson that i get from from this scripture is that no one is beyond God's redemption. No one. That's like, and maybe some of you in your head are saying, oh, but what about this person or that person or this person? No one. So whether we're talking about Genghis Khan, whether we're talking about Hitler or Stalin, who, whoever are some of the worst people that you can think of, if, if they repent and turn to God, they are not beyond God's love and redemption, just straight out. Uh, and then the second thing that I was thinking about in this is that human nature hasn't changed a lot in 3000 years, has it? Yeah, no, some of you are laughing. <laughs> We kind of are who we are, right? And so um, maybe next week, we'll see how God guides me. But if you're following the lectionary, next week's uh, Genesis passage is actually from chapter two and three, which is what we, are, we know as the fall of, you know, Adam and Eve eating the apple and, and whatnot. Um, that's a funny way of saying that sin enters the world. Um, but it's one of those things where I think we all have to wrestle with, with who we are as humanity. Uh, I have a mentee, well, she's not technically my mentee, but I've been helping her through the ordination process and commissioning and that kind of thing. Um, and, and one of the questions that we have to answer, whether you're talking about being an ordained deacon or an elder, is this question about sin and evil. And then there's another question about humanity and how we need God's grace. And part of that is, at least from the Susquehanna Conference's viewpoint, is being able to articulate how sin entered the world and how we're influenced by it. We'll say that, right? So you might be someone that believes that the moment that you're conceived, you are, you are conceived into sin. Okay. Some other people believe that there's that original blessing that Michelle read from Genesis 1, 27 and to 31 about how we are created good. But because of the world that we live in, we are so impacted by the sin and possibility for evil um, that even though we're created good, we become sinful pretty quickly. Um, and it's through our choices that we are sinful. Regardless of where you stand in terms of how you describe how sin impacts us, how, how the enemy uh, moves through this world, uh, we're influenced by it, right? We have such an amazing capacity for good in our original blessing 
and also see that we have such an amazing capacity for evil. Um, so yeah, human nature hasn't changed much in 3,000 years. We still pout when we don't get our way. I love that. Like it just, Ahab just gets so cranky. Like, I'm, no, man. Um, it shows that, that God loves people even when they're sad and angry, which is a beautiful thing. And then the third thing that, that I thought of that I think, especially in, in this time, um, in this moment of American history, and also in terms of what's happening in the United Methodist Church, is that leaders are fallible. We, we make mistakes. Um, leaders can get things wrong, and it can hurt people. And leaders can also be easily corrupted. And so we need to realize or remember, maybe, that our hope is not in the leaders of our nation or our bishops or our district superintendents or even our pastors, right? Our hope is in Jesus. Because as we sang in the, in the hymn right before the sermon, it's nothing but the blood, right? Like President Biden can't save us because that's not his job. That's not the job of any president. It's not the job of our bishops. It's not my job to save you. Only Jesus can do that. And so as I was thinking about how to encourage you to, to sink into this scripture and maybe give a practical application of how we can, um, how we can use whatever wisdom we've gleaned from this um, this week, one of the things that I thought of doing, as you see in your bulletin, is to pray in alignment with God's will for both church and politi political leaders this week, um, for the people that you voted for and the people that you didn't. Because um, we're called in other parts of scripture to pray for our leaders. And as we can see from this scripture passage in particular, we see what happens when people stray or don't know God, right? Like we don't know, honestly, whether or not our leaders are Christian unless they tell us. And then sometimes we question them anyway, right? We're like, mm, I'm not so sure. Um, so, but we have the opportunity to influence the world uh, with our prayers and with, with praying for people that they, you know, especially our leaders in terms of they have wisdom, they have knowledge of what to do in certain situations and how, you know, how to positively impact people and how to bring people into safety and security in ways that, um, in ways that increase the way that people are treated with dignity and respect and honor. We can do that. Tara Lynn came up to me a couple weeks ago and said that, you know, the power of prayer was very manifest in her life when she was in her accident. It's true. We have power both from speaking prayers out into the world, but also praying silently. God hears. Um, 
And so if, if you take nothing else from, from the sermon today, that's really more of a Bible study, I admit. Um, pray for your leaders. Pray for people who come into your head and you're like, oh, I pray blessing on them. Let the Holy Spirit work in and through you so that, so that we can demonstrate Jesus' love and compassion in this world. Because it's not judgment that's going to bring people to Christ. It is going to be love. And in that love, there's transformation and, and mercy and all of the things that we yearn for so deeply, I think, is humanity. So, yeah, let's pray. Let's continue to pray for who God is um, to be manifest in this world and that our leaders, church and, and political, can know who God is and, and do, the, do the wise and discerning thing. Amen. <laughs>